If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, also in your bulletin. I'm going to back up just a couple of verses before our sermon text this morning just to give us the flow of the context. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 8. I'll start in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, begged Jesus, to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And so, last week we saw that Jesus did this two-stage miracle on purpose to illustrate for us that He needs to touch our eyes so that we can see him clearly. We see that Peter sees him but doesn't see him quite clearly. And then Jesus, in the passage I'm about to read, will help us to see him more clearly, to help us see everything clearly. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, would you come by the power of your Spirit and open our eyes? Touch our eyes, Lord Jesus, as you teach us about yourself so that we can see everything clearly like this blind man did. We, we know that we only see you hazily. Um, and like Peter, we may see you correctly. You are the Christ, but Lord Jesus, we long to see you more clearly. 
So would you come by your spirit, touch our eyes, and give us clear sight, and give us hearts that love what we see when you show us yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This afternoon at three, I will help my friend Roger bury his wife, Chris, just up the road, I think that way, in Sail Creek. Roger and his wife, Chris, were like an older brother and sister to me and Christine when we were dating and during our first year of marriage. Roger was and still is a deacon at Sail Creek Presbyterian Church. He's the treasurer and has been since the beginning of time, I think. Um, Their daughters, Kathy and Laura, were in our youth group, the first youth group I had the privilege of serving, um, where Christine and I served together as we finished college and when we were first married before we went off to seminary. For about two years, Christine and I had Sunday lunch at Roger and Chris's house virtually every week. And um, they welcomed us in like family. Roger and Chris loved us like we were their own. 29 years ago, this coming May, Chris made our wedding cake. Um, And we were married in the exact same spot in that little white church up on Highway 27 where we will hold Chris's funeral later today. And at three this afternoon, I'll stand in that spot beside Roger and Chris's pastor. And I'll read some scripture. I'll say a few words about Chris and about Roger and about Jesus. And we'll pray. And we'll follow the hearse to that little cemetery, which sits right close to the little house that Roger and Chris lived in when we used to have Sunday lunch with them. And we'll watch them lower her casket into the 66 years old. 46 and a half years ago, Roger said to Chris, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. And when he said those words, he had no idea that the last 20 years of their marriage would test that little bit there at the end, that sickness and health part. Her health began to decline about 20 years ago, slowly but steadily, and then about five years ago or so, Chris was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and she survived surgeries, and she survived cancer, but not without a severe blow to her already failing health. And over these last five years, Chris developed other complications, including a paralysis in her feet that that left her ridden several years ago. Roger retired a few years ago and took on the full-time care of his wife. It got to where she couldn't leave the bed. And Roger was there to feed her, to keep her clean, to empty the urine and colostomy bags. The only time Chris could leave the bed was to go to a doctor's appointment. And it got to where she couldn't even do that. 
Roger told me we've been having coffee every couple of months for the last six months or so, and Roger told me with tears in his eyes about those horrible times in the middle of the night where she would scream in pain for hours, begging Jesus to please take it away. And Roger felt so helpless. One of his girls told me last night at the visitation, she said, I don't know what daddy's going to do with himself now. He's taking care of mama night and day for a long time. His whole life was about taking care of her. You see, my friend Roger is a remarkable man. And no, you don't know him. You probably won't know him. He spent his working years at Lazy Boy in Dayton in an office, finished out his career at Robinson Manufacturing. Crunchy numbers at a desk. Roger, as I said, has been a deacon in the church treasurer for over 30 years, faithfully serving the church that he grew up in. Roger probably won't write a book about his years of service to his wife and his family and his church and his company. They won't make a movie about his life. But it has been remarkable. Mark chapter 8 tells us what makes Roger tick. Roger has lived this remarkable life because Roger sees everything clearly. Because Jesus has touched his eyes. Like that blind man Jesus healed, Jesus touched the eyes of Roger's heart, and for many, many years, Roger has seen everything clearly. And oh, if we could see everything as clearly as Roger does. So what does Roger see? Roger sees Jesus clearly. Now, Peter saw Jesus, but he didn't at that time see Jesus as as clearly as Roger does. Peter was right when he said, and Peter was the first to say it, you are the Christ. But last week we learned that Peter still didn't see Jesus clearly. He saw Jesus, but that signal mountain fog was still making it tough to see him clearly. Jesus knew this about Peter, and so Jesus had to touch the spiritual eyes of Peter and the disciples so that they could finally see everything clearly. And verse 31 says, Jesus touched them by teaching them. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things (coughs) and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. Now, I know Roger. And I know that over these many, many years, Jesus has taught him about himself. And so, l- let me unpack what, Jesus see, uh, what Roger sees about Jesus. Like Peter, Roger sees clearly that Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things. It was his favorite name for himself. If Jesus showed up here on a Sunday morning, he would get a Sharpie and a name tag, and he would write, Son of Man, and put it on his chest. 
but it's no accident that that title harkens back to the prophet Daniel's vision of the Messiah who would one day come. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God. And he was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's the Messiah that Peter was talking about. That's what I'm talking about, Jesus. You're the son of man. Peter and Roger both see Jesus the same on that point. He's the majestic king whose kingdom will have no end. This Jesus is that son of man. This Jesus is that Christ. But Roger sees something about Jesus that at that point Peter didn't see. And Jesus had to teach Peter and the disciples how to see things more clearly. See, Jesus taught the disciples that he must suffer many things. He must be rejected and must be killed and must rise again. That little word must speaks volumes about our Jesus. Roger sees clearly that Jesus is the son who submits to his father because he loves him. That little word must teaches us that Jesus is a son who submits his will to his father's will. And Mark will tell us later that Jesus would say in the garden the night before his crucifixion, not my will, but yours be done. We know that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Roger sees Jesus clearly as the son who submits his will to the Father's will. But what is the will of the Father? What is Jesus willing to do that the Father wants done? Ah, something else Roger sees. And he sees it because Jesus taught him. Roger also sees clearly that Jesus is the servant who suffers to love the people the Father has given him. Mark says, the son, or Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. See, Roger knows something that Peter and the disciples had forgotten, and that is that the prophets also promised that Christ would not only be the glorious king, but he would be the suffering servant. And so we read in Isaiah 53 this morning that Isaiah promised that the Christ would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one who was despised, one who would be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brings us peace would be placed. And with his wounds we would be healed. The Messiah would be, the Christ would be a suffering servant. And Isaiah goes on to tell us 
what the will of the Father is to which Jesus submitted. Nathan read it earlier. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in the Messiah's hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was the will of the Lord for Jesus to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. Why? So that Jesus would be the perfect offering for our guilt that Isaiah promised. So that Jesus could make many of us to be accounted righteous. So that Jesus could bear our iniquities, our sins, on himself, in our place. That's how much the Father loves us. That was his will for his Son. It was for him to be not only a submissive son, but a suffering servant. But that's not all. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Lord prolonged the days of his suffering servant and that the will of the Lord prospered in his suffering servant's hand. How did the will of the Lord prosper in Jesus' hand? We know it prospered because after three days he rose again, as he predicted he would. So the resurrection of the suffering servant from the dead was proof that the Father's will to save his people from their sins had prospered. The sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by God on our behalf. This is what the disciples needed to see clearly. That Jesus is the glorious Son of Man, yes. But that he is the Son who submits his will to his Father by being the servant who suffers to love his people. So my friend Roger sees Jesus clearly because... Jesus has taught him what we confessed this morning from Philippians 2, that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was the son who submits to his father. Even death on a cross, he's the servant who suffers for his people. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. He rose from the dead, and he sits, he sits exalted at the Father's right hand. So Roger sees Jesus clearly. <coughs> Excuse me. And because Jesus is clear in Roger's vision, Roger sees himself clearly. Roger sees himself as, the one, as one of those sinners whom the Father loves. One of those sinners for whom the suffering servant lived and died and whom the Spirit is now making new with resurrection power. Because Roger sees clearly that Jesus came to suffer and be rejected and die on the cross for sinners, he can now rest in the truth that Jesus did this for him for his sin, for his rescue, for his renewal. And Roger can say with John Newton, 
Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. So Roger sees clearly that he's a great sinner. And that creates humility in him. A humility that if you knew Roger, it just oozes from him. Roger has that kind of humility that says, the greatest problem in my Christian life is me. But Roger not only sees himself in humility as a great sinner, he sees Jesus as a great Savior. And that creates hope in him. Because Roger can say, if the greatest problem in my life is me, then my only hope is the love that God has for me in Jesus. And with the cross clearly in sight, Roger has hope that the Father loves him. Roger has hope that Jesus loves him and gave himself for him. But that's not all. Jesus also taught Roger that he rose from the dead on the third day. And since Roger sees that clearly, he has hope that the spirit of Jesus will raise him to new life. Roger's hope to be made new rests in the resurrection of Jesus, and so does yours. Roger remembers that Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. Roger rests in Romans 6, where Paul said, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, the Spirit had Mark write this gospel so that through this book, Jesus would touch your eyes by teaching you who he is so that you could see clearly who he is, and so that you would see clearly who you are in him. So do we see him clearly? Do we see him as the glorious son of man and son of God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but submitted his will to the Father's will and took on human flesh to become the suffering servant who obeyed even to death on a cross so that you and I could be rescued and reconciled to God and renewed by his spirit. Do I see him that clearly? And maybe you're like me and you say, okay, yes, I see those things, yet I want to see them more clearly. I want to, I know that I need to see Jesus and myself more clearly if I'm going to make it. Jesus, show me, show me yourself. We need to constantly be praying that. Lord, I see, help me to see more clearly. And then we need to put ourselves into the very words that he uses to teach us who he is. We need to put ourselves into this book, the story of Jesus, the Bible. 
Did you know that 25 men in this church are about to embark on a journey of putting themselves in the Word of God? A chapter a week for the next year? We're going to read a chapter a week starting in Mark. We're going to jump on a teleconference once a week for about 30 minutes, talk about it, pray about it with each other. And the reason we're going to do that is because we need to see Jesus more clearly. If you want to be a part of that, talk to Jim West. He's the guy with the big laugh. But Roger is that kind of man. He has put his eyes and ears in the Bible regularly for decades. And it's helped him to see Jesus clearly. But there's one more thing Jesus wants us to see clearly that Roger, I think, sees. He wants us to see why we're here. Mark says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Now, now he's not just calling the disciples, he's talking to everyone. Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, you and I are not merely here to believe the gospel. We are here to become the gospel. We're not merely here to believe the story of Jesus. We are here to put it on display in our lives. We're not here just to um, rest in Jesus' submission to his Father and suffering in love for others. We are here to replicate that submission to our Father and suffering love for others. And Roger sees that clearly, and that's why Roger lives and loves and serves like he does. Roger sees himself as a son who submits his will to his Father's will because he loves him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, become like me. Submit your will to my Father's will. Want to go there? So if the Father who loves Roger says, Roger, son, I want you to serve your wife in a way that puts Jesus on display to your family, your church, your co-workers, your neighbors. And then Roger says, yes, sir. And then when it gets hard and when submitting to his father's will to serve his wife and her broken body feels like it will be the death of Roger, Roger may even cry out, Lord, remove this cup from me. Find another way. Don't make my service so severe. But because Roger is in Jesus, Roger will say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Because you see, like Jesus, Roger 
has had to lay aside his rights, quote-unquote. Rogers had to lay aside his entitlements and gladly submit to the will of the Father who loved Roger enough to rescue and renew him. So Roger sees his own role in life clearly. I am a son who submits my will to my Father's will. But then Roger also sees himself as a servant who suffers to love the people God has given him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. You see, Jesus didn't just obey his father. Philippians 2 says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Mark was writing this gospel for a a Gentile audience in a Roman world, so they knew what it meant to carry a cross. To carry a cross to your own crucifixion was humiliating, excruciating. It meant you were nothing. It meant you were despised. It meant that you were mocked as you hung naked and exposed, slowly suffocating. And that's sometimes what it feels like to love the people God has put in your house, in your office, in your school, in your neighborhood. It feels like you're going to die to love them. But because Roger is in Jesus, the suffering servant, and because Jesus, the suffering servant, is in Roger, he could obey his father's will for his life, even though it feels like death on a cross. So enough about Roger, what about us? Now, seeing everything clearly about Jesus and ourselves and our purpose for being here isn't just for married people. I'm using Roger's marriage as a metaphor for us, a picture for us. When Jesus first made his vow to us in his life and death and resurrection. And God said to us, do you? And we said, I do. Well, that was easy. I mean, when Jesus wants to take us in as his bride, we're thinking, I, this is, I can't believe it. He loves me. He wants me. So I was happy at that point to say to Jesus, forsaking all others, Jesus, I cling only unto you. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. But when it got hard, when Jesus asked me to suffer to love the people he's given me and the places he's put me, when Jesus asked me to suffer even the rejection of the ones I'm trying to love, When Jesus asked me to love until it feels like I'm going to die, like I'm nailed to a cross and I'm suffocating and I have nothing left to give, well, that's when it got real. So where in your life are you finding it excruciating, painfully, painful to follow Jesus? Where does it feel like you are being asked to lose your life? 
You need to hear the promise of the one who submitted to his father's will to rescue you. You need to hear the promise of the one who suffered to love you. Jesus says, come, follow me, and die. But what it really means is, come, follow me, and live. Jesus says, if you'll lose your life for my sake in the gospel, then you'll have the life that your heart was really made for. The whole world's going to tell you the adulterous generation that you live in who have cheated on the, groom, the bridegroom, that adulterous generation is going to tell you that living a life like Roger has lived is a wasted life. But though they may shame you now, you will not know shame on the day that Jesus comes to take you to the place that he's been preparing for you, his bride. You will not know shame on the day when Jesus finally holds you in his arms and says, you're mine. Father, we ask that you would help us to see clearly. Help us to see clearly, Jesus. Help us to see clearly who we are in him. And help us to see clearly what we're here to do. What it means to be his disciple. Thank you for this table. Thankful, thank you for this place where uh, we sit across from each other. Jesus and his bride. And here at this table, we look longingly into his eyes. We look longingly into the eyes that love us and gave himself for us. And he looks into ours. And he says, I know I've asked you I know I've asked you to deny yourself. I know I've asked you to take up your cross and follow me. But look, you can trust my heart. I did it for you. So help us, Lord Jesus, over this table to look into your eyes and to see how much you love us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.